The conversation you're about to hear should hopefully help you regardless of the asset size of your institution. Uh, while we're talking about something that the Fed put out there for very large institutions, really the premise of what they're discussing and the thought process of thinking through different angles on the scenarios that you might do and how to think about different risks and connecting different risks is something that every place can benefit from to analyze and help their team make more informed decisions. So I hope that you enjoy the following discussion that Dustin and I have on this topic. Hi there, and welcome to C. Myers Live. I'm Rob Johnson, president of C. Myers. I'm Dustin Wright, vice president at C. Myers. And uh, Dustin and I uh, have, we get excited about strange things. And one of the things we get excited about is seeing what the Fed puts out each February for their different DFAS scenarios. And this time it, it came with a, a little extra gift. And we were talking about what the Fed put out there. And we thought that it's something that really everyone in the industry should be should be paying attention to. So, Dustin, why don't you start talking about some of your observations and, and tell about the little extra thing that the Fed did? Yeah, well, usually it's customary. They Every February they release these are the baseline and severely adverse stress tests that we're going to be subjecting you know, the institutions to that are subject to the, the Dodd-Frank Act stress test requirements. But this time around, they released what they call the exploratory analysis of risks to the banking system. And it's it's separate and different from the Dodd-Frank Act stress test requirements, but it does incorporate some other things that commonly haven't been included in the stress tests, which were more focused on not necessarily duplicating, but recreating some of the conditions that caused the, the credit crunch in the Great Recession that we experienced in the early 2000s. And so the exploratory analysis is, is a departure from that approach and more focused on really kind of the economic stresses that we've been seeing in terms of higher interest rates as well as inflationary pressures continuing and leading to other pressures for financial institutions. I think, and just to be clear for um, while you and I have the benefit of working with a lot of institutions over $10 billion in assets, we we actually think that the foundations that they're saying here are things that one you know everyone in the industry should should have been doing all along um, some of the things that we'll talk about on these pieces but extra to to pay attention to what they're saying and and think about why they might be saying it and i think that as you look at this it it really connects with a reminder that we it's better to do more scenario analysis and test different potential impacts to see what can happen to help make more informed decisions instead of just get fixated on a path or two that may occur and i think that that's that's something really nice to see that the the fed is pushing that idea out there more and so we're you know applauding that effort happening there yeah, and one of the key things that that's different, you know, that in the exploratory analysis is the aspect of focusing on funding stress, and that's very very different than what was experienced during the onset of the of the Great Recession from a consumer deposit perspective. So consumer based deposits flowed into financial institutions as a result of the Great Recession and the the, the ensuing flight to safety, but 
from a, a, an interest rate perspective, as rates have remained elevated and inflationary pressures have also remained elevated, the funding stress now becomes a function of price. What's the price or the cost to keep this funding on the balance sheet? Or else it might go away to an alternative investment, another competitor, whatever it might be, or get spent down on, on spending it down on debt or spending that uh, that money on on other things just to be able to maintain a quality of life with in continued inflationary pressures and uh, continued stress from an elevated inflationary level. Yeah, and let let's actually on this talk about beyond their you know their baseline and beyond the severely adverse and some of the environments that you said that historically they would look at what it, what it is that they're having you look at now and. They're saying this document summarizes four elements of exploratory analysis. Now, we'll comment that we'll add a link in the show notes for people to get to this information. When you go there, while we're reading, you know, from excerpts of the summary of the analysis, they also did um, put out some different scenarios in CSV or in, in Excel for you to see some of the specific timing as to what some of the different environments might look like. And we do encourage places to look at that and, and say, well, what is it that they're representing? Why might they be doing that? As we look at the document on the four scenarios, the, the first one really kind of represents the essence of, of what we see them focusing on here. And that is funding stress that causes a rapid repricing of, lar of a large portion of deposits at large banks. Under moderate global recession, combined with increasing inflationary pressures and rising interest rates, so kind of the opposite direction of their severely adverse. The other three, there, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, as you look at, you know, two, three, and four, and what places should be thinking about? Well, as we look at two, three, and four, the two is the same funding stress, but it's a severe global recession. It's not just isolated to the United States, which then introduces, of course, other variables for, for sure for large globally connected firms, but then also it changes the competitive landscape and the competitive dynamic for domestic institutions. And so that shift in that, that focus from a, a moderate global recession to a severe global recession can change the dynamic even for institutions that are not internationally active. And then when we look at the you know, items three and four, in terms of market shocks, this is taking the, the funding stress, the inflationary pressure, and then of course the, the cost of funds that are going up with repricing a large proportion of, of deposits at, at financial institutions and saying, now there's also a dislocation to financial markets. And this would be really a mixture of two different kinds of events. One, the funding and inflationary pressures, but then also some of the dislocation and shock to the markets that had occurred as an onset to the Great Recession. So it's taking both pieces and kind of forming this exploratory analysis to say, let's combine the market shock and a, a, a recession with continued funding and elevated interest rates, which is a departure from what they've done in the past. Yeah, I agree. And and I think depending on the uh, the size and the complexity of your institution, and if you're saying, look, we uh, we only have so many resources to test some of these things, then start with that first one. If you hit that first one, you know that that's we're thinking that that gives most places a pretty good 
insight as to some of the additional challenges that they're trying to shine a light on for the inst institutions. And it's it's actually pretty representative of a lot of what happened over the last two years. And so it's you know you can tell that they definitely are responding to what's been occurring to say the analysis needs to improve the simulation and what it factors in needs to improve and some of that is because historically a lot of the analysis was pretty static in its approach it, it really didn't represent uh, frankly some of the challenges that the environment is having right now so i know that you know we, we both get really excited about this part but maybe uh hand this part over to you to talk about the deposit side of things because i, I can't steal your thunder on that part oh th thank you rob and yeah absolutely there's if the last two years have taught us anything it's a couple of different things one with respect to rates it's that well that the you know, regulatory approaches normally have been let's shock interest rates up immediately and then evaluate either a 12 or 24 month and sometimes longer, you know, it net interest income horizon or net income horizon and then evaluation component as well. That's been kind of the common approach that's been um, written from a regulatory perspective that that most institutions um, you know look, look at exclusively. Well, the reality of the last couple of years is that rates didn't instantly go up anywhere. They change and they change oddly enough over about a 12 month horizon. And then for the duration of 2023, we had short term rates at or around 5%. And so interest rates went up over the course of 2022 and then remained elevated in 2023. And that's really when we started to see some of the initial deposit moves and the shifts and the changes in funding. And when we're looking at whether it's it's we're performing a model validation, anybody's performing a model validation, examiners are looking at ALM models. One of the key things that comes out a lot is are, are the assumptions back testable? It really is it empirically observable any of the information or any of the assumptions that are going into the model to generate the results. And so we've had two years of interest rates increasing and then remaining elevated. And the empirically observable reality on the deposit side of the balance sheet is that consumers do and businesses do change their behavior based upon prevailing market rates, number one, and based upon management's pricing strategy to address those market rates. And so there's really a push-pull in deposit pricing. It's not simply that rates went up, but it's rates went up, I can get X percent more on my money at another institution or in an alternative investment. And then this is how my primary financial institution is responding with, with their interest rates and what they're returning to me from a yield perspective. And I evaluate those two different pieces. And that's really what the Federal Reserve, I think, is getting at in this key piece of the exploratory analysis is what if some of those deposit dollars do start to wake up and suddenly demand the higher yields we've been seeing in the term deposits or, or in the leading money market and online savings rates of the past six, seven, eight, nine months? Yeah, and I, I think the key on that is it's not only the rates, as you said, and so that pressure, but also the pressure of inflation. Even as you're, you might increase your rates, but it still might not retain the kind of deposits that you had had in the past because, you know, businesses and individuals are dealing with their own pressures from inflation and that can 
also have a pull on money. And so it's really watching that. In fact, they they say here that the exploratory analysis assumes banks will face difficult funding environment in much in which they must respond to higher interest rates to maintain their deposit levels. Now, like this could occur as you know, as depositors seek higher yields, but you know, banks would be required to raise, you know, the rates that they're paid on deposits or substitute those deposits with more expensive source of funding. Now, when I will tell you good news, unlike um, many documents out there, this is actually a pretty short document. It's only about three pages. So do recommend, you know, give it, read for yourself. But you'll notice a key part in there is they say as part of the analysis, 20% of non-interest bearing deposits shift into time deposits. Now, we'll say here, this is one of those where we're going to recommend, especially analyzing you know, depository institutions and seeing what's been happening out there, is uh, you know, we'd recommend don't just strictly adhere to the language or the semantics of saying non-interest-bearing deposits. You know, maybe you're looking saying, okay, that's not so bad. 23% of my structure is non-interest-bearing, so I only have to worry about 20% of those dollars moving. Uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't recommend doing that. And you know, in our studies, what we see is there is actually more money moving, for example, from savings accounts, just those regular old core savings accounts, than there are, of course, in, from things like money markets. As we study what's happening with our clients and we look at this every single month on the experience that's happening month over month for institutions, those accounts that are, you know, you're you're paying a basis point five basis points, 10 basis points, those really low interest rates, those are the ones that are also moving right now. And so they're talking about more of a stress, but for many institutions, we've been already seeing those moving, you know, 10, 15, 20% out of those regular savings. So we would encourage you apply this to really most of the non-maturity deposits, especially anything that's at, you know, lower, rates where the consumer has a material advantage to move and pick up pick up a nicer you know cd rate or go out there to money market mutual funds things like that and that's that's where you really get this distinction between the financial advantage versus the inflationary pressure you could easily argue that most non-interest bearing accounts tend to be transactional those core transactional accounts with direct deposit and e-statements and all of that stuff that that help make those really efficient and low cost sources of funding that's where some of the inflationary pressure comes in but the competitive nature that they're addressing here when they say have to you know be required to raise rates on deposits or substitute the deposits with more expensive sources of funding. And so it's not just substituting the deposits with other types of deposits, but what if it's market-based funding rates, such as wholesale deposits or borrowings, brokered funds, things along those lines, which are much more rate sensitive, much more market sensitive than the typical more core funding of those savings accounts or those non-interest bearing transactional accounts that financial institutions, frankly, have been able to grow over the last decade with very, very little effort in many instances. Yeah. And so I think, you know, they're they're hitting the right things here. Is it the right number? Uh, it's a number that is reasonable to start off with a stress. And then you can also, especially, you know, depending on your size is 
you might te be testing and looking these things out. Look, look at the intent on it and say, all right, what are they showing? And maybe I have more sensitivity than that or less, but maybe start there at the 20%. We see with a lot of our clients, the assumptions in the model is actually pretty close to about 20%. And we've been doing this for several decades on, on factoring in that risk. And, and for most of them, it, the assumption in the higher environments does come out in that 20, 25, somewhere a little bit higher there. And, and so it's really understanding your business model. Look at that and then say, what can go wrong? And not, not telling yourself, no, I don't need to worry about that because it's not part of the standard test that the regulators historically looked at. They're encouraging you to know, go beyond that. Help your business out by understanding these very real risks and what they can do to you. While at the same time, they do comment on uh, assume mortgage originations and you know that they decline sharply which of course the industry has also been seeing and in this test they they are showing a you know an even steeper inverted yield curve they're taking short-term rates up to six percent they're assuming the 10-year treasuries at about four percent when they're looking at this to say there can be this this that, that very tough inverted yield curve it can be very challenging to make money in inverted yield curves so they're pushing that out there for a little bit before then assuming over time and start to settle down. Yep. And that that inverted yield curve is something we did experience. That two, three percent inverted yield curve we experienced as rates were first starting to go up. And so it's really more of a continuation of the pressures that the Fed was addressing as they were increasing rates to say, what if this does continue and it's an exploratory condition in that it, they're recognizing it is a departure from what they have done in the past, which was addressing really more of the, the Great Recession type event, which arguably most financial institutions for the last three, four, five years have been fairly well insulated against. And so then in testing the resiliency of the banking system and the financial system at large, the Fed is going down this exploratory path. But as Rob mentioned, you don't have to be over $10 billion if you're a credit union. You don't have to be over you know, multiples of that if you're from a banking perspective. Any institution can test what if we do see a good portion of our lower cost funding migrate and we experience pressure on our reinvestment earnings. Because when they're talking about the higher rates causing mortgage originations to drop and refinancing to decline more sharply, what that means is there's more pressure on new business because you're not able to generate the two to two and a half percent or one to one and a half percent spreads above treasury rates. You might have to rely on reinvestment yields that are closer, closer to treasury rates. And that places a lot of pressure on that reinvestment income stream that will mean it's harder to pay the cost of funds on those repricing deposits that the Fed is encouraging you to study and migrate. Yeah, and for perspective as to why this magnitude is so important, um, this is a, a simple exercise. Consider what if 10% of your structure moves, you know, whether you're looking at short-term rates staying at 5% right now or going up above 6%, like they're representing in this exploratory analysis. Well, if you have let's call it 10% of your structure and your total funding moves from 10 basis points to 5.1%, like CDs are you know, in many places right now, 
that alone, that 500 basis point increase on 10% of your structure, that's going to hit your return on assets about 50 basis points. Now, if rates go up over six, it could hit your return on assets 60 basis points by having that movement and having to replace those funds, whether they move within the institution five plus percent, six plus percent, or they go elsewhere and you have to go get wholesale funding or do some other action, 50 to 60 basis points of earnings, that really starts to change a lot of places from being on the positive side to the negative side and starts to eat into that capital that, of course, is really important. And so this is a test that, frankly, we're excited to see that they're talking about. We've talked about these things for a long time. From an ALM perspective, we'll point out that each of the different rate environments that are being shown, whether it's the, the rates up and inverted yield curves or the rates down and deposits migrating or having to move to higher rates, our clients they already have that in the simulation. So if you're one of our clients, you can pull those simulation those scenarios up. It's already there. If you're not one of our clients and you don't have that information, then it's a good idea to at least you know request and start to see. You know, some models need a separate here, run a specific environment, then run some of those environments, learn from it, see what it does, but make sure you're adjusting the behavior of the consumer in response to that environment. Because just showing the environment and assuming that the money stays static, that's not going to actually represent the risk of that environment that they're worried about. And frankly, that a lot of people should be thinking about continuing. Yeah. And the the other aspect that's important to explore with this is when they talk about the market shocks and and the additional macroeconomic conditions coupled with the recession is that this is interest rates up combined with a credit crunch or combined with they actually say you know an increase in anticipated defaults is leading to a widening in credit spreads and so that that change in economic activity combined with the inflationary pressure is unique because the the stress tests in the past have always been credit focused but credit focused with rates plummeting now we've got rates increasing remaining elevated with inflationary pressure and layering that credit risk on top and so this this begins the 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 formation really of saying what if more than one bad quote unquote economic event happens at the same time and mm -hmm. let's look at these inflationary pressures combined with the cost of funding pressure the lack of viable reinvestment alternatives and extra credit shocks and that's something that institutions should absolutely be factoring in and and can factor in yeah it absolutely it's that aggregating of all those things so it's something we've been passionate about for a long time is we really think that looking at risk should not be done in silos we need to pull all those things together because how else can you expect to help optimize your structure and your ability to manage the combination of risk if you treat them in silos and that's why i've always hit we got to pull all those things together and ask yourself well what are other concerns that we need to at least represent because we know that earlier you see things the earlier you see, you see potential risk coming together then it can actually help you adjust your strategy to it uh, for example while all this is happening what if there's more pressure on non-interest income that of course is a big area as people are looking at you know, credit card, you know, restructuring on what might happen there, overdraft protection, 
and uh, you know some of the pressure on that front. So depending on your business model, kind of taking these environmental pressures, recognizing at the same time, okay, if these are occurring, then how can we weather that and make sure that we're still able to have a really strong business model afterwards, or it might be weaker, but it can rebound from that. And seeing that can really help inform some of the decisions as to your next steps that you might want to take for your organization. And, and aggregating those risks and taking the totality, also you know, including some opportunities as well. What are the opportunities that might arise for, for your institution as others are, are weathering the storm or, or fighting through it? Are you better positioned than average to be able to deal with this particular type of an event if it were to, to come to pass? And what does that mean for your strategic objectives? And so focusing on that aggregation of the risks and opportunities and measuring it against capital. And there's different ways to look at capital. There's, you know, from a credit union perspective, you have net worth, you have the net capital ratio for the stress tests. In banking land, you have your tier one equity and your, and your common shareholder equity capital. So looking at the, the core of your equity capital, whether it's paid in, generally speaking, that's either common shareholder equity or the earnings that have been accumulated by the institution since inception. And looking at that capital and what is your ability to sustain and grow that capital through organic earnings and continue to then support the strategic needs as well as the, the, the risks that are being taken by the organization. Yeah, and Dustin, I'm glad you, you brought that up towards the end uh, as we're looking at this because what you don't want to do is over rely on looking at your risk-based capital ratio and saying we're fine because of that one of the things that you see happens is when stresses occur people you know they, they go back to looking at how much real capital do you have what's your leverage position how much of a threat can you handle because a lot of times the, the risk-based capital measures don't capture these risks that we're talking about so really watching that the equity from that perspective to say what's our sustainability and then what's our position to rebuild and ideally if you find that you're you're positioned really well with the combination of events and stresses looking at rates going different directions saying gosh we're optimized pretty well right now then how do you turn that into an opportunity as you said and i think as as teams have those conversations it can really help them improve their business model to be better positioned for the future so i think we'll we'll wrap up here i know that it's it's a lot to think about, to encourage um, reading the three pages, looking at some of the scenarios, uh, recognizing that it, it should spawn thinking right now. For those of you um, over 10 billion, this is not, don't think of, of this as a requirement, but probably a really good thing to be doing and showing for yourself first, and then also to represent to the regulators. But those of you under 10 billion, uh, jump in. Um, you don't have to, do all the stacks of documentation that a lot of times comes with those over the 10 billion side, but you can take the essence and the learnings of what is being addressed here and make sure you're feeling well positioned for these different environments, because these different environments can hit everyone and that that's really what you want to prepare yourself for.
And as Rob mentioned, this is the, the beginning of the conversation. We And we love having conversations about this kind of stuff. So if, if there's anything that you want to talk about from a more specific to your institution, how to address um, your strategic needs or the individual risks that you might be exposed to, feel free to reach out. Uh, we love having these conversations and, and there's always the opportunity to, to learn from one another. Absolutely. We look forward to further conversations. Take care.